You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know with lively discussion and occasional audience participation. With experts in different cannabis spaces with a diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. This is episode number 236. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over. Get this, guys. We just hit 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members. If you want to be an audience participant, otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you. So please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about Mike Tyson wants a mouthful of the edible industry. Canopy growth gets slapped with half a million dollar fine, weeding out the corruption in California. Oregon's psilocybin legalization experiment begins in earnest, and many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. But keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. I'm going to start off the show today with a doozy of a story. It comes from Sport Bible, and the title is Mike Tyson's Weed Company is Making Edibles in the Shape of an Ear with Chunk Missing by Jack Kenmare. When I first read this headline, I thought, holy crap, why? Why, Mike, why? But as per usual, there's more to the story. So let's say so here it is. So Mike Tyson's weed company is making edibles in the shape of an ear. Uh, uh, in a nod to biting off Evander Holyfield's ear. The 55-year-old former heavyweight champion who has been selling cannabis products since 2016 is believed to earn around $1 million per month through his business. I, I just... Is that true? I don't know. That seems like fake news. In fact, the baddest man on the planet is even the owner of a 420-acre weed resort near Desert Hot Springs in Southern California, where cannabis is legal. Tyson has made a huge amount of money in the world of weed, and now it appears his next venture includes selling edibles in the shape of an ear with the new product being labeled as Mike's Bites. The edible is, of course, in reference to Tyson being disqualified for biting a chunk out of Evander Holyfield's ear during their WBA heavyweight championship title clash in 1997. Tyson was fined $3,000,000 by the Nevada State Athletic Commission for his actions and didn't fight again for over a year while doctors performed a 90-minute procedure to try and save Holyfield's ear. The bizarre incident is still talked about to this day, but despite the shocking nature behind the ear bite, the the pair have since patched up their differences. In fact, both men took part in a Foot Locker's Week of Greatness campaign in 20, 2006, where Tyson hand, handed over a special gift in the form of Holyfield's ear. And we're going to hear that clip right now. I'm sorry, Evander. It's your ear. I kept that in formaldehyde. Thanks. And then they hug. And uh, Hollyfield revealed that he is glad Tyson bit his ear 24 years ago and that he holds no grudges over his former rival. 
Quote, it don't bother me. It cost me a lot of grief, but I'm glad it happened because it gave me an opportunity to talk about what forgiveness is. If somebody breaks into your house, you don't think, how can I break into theirs? What people don't know is Mike is a lot more knowledgeable than they think. Quote, they think he's crazy, but he's a business person now. You can't be the same way uh, when you get older, unquote. Tyson, meanwhile, opened up about the incident in 2020. Quote, I bit him because I wanted to kill him. I was really mad about my head being bumped and everything, unquote, he told Fox News. Quote, I really lost consciousness of the whole fight. It took me out of my fight plan and everything, unquote. My question is, is Holyfield getting a chunk of any of this change? What do you guys think about Tyson making a million dollars a month? I think, well, I don't know about that, but I think Holyfield absolutely should get some money. And uh, I think he should hire Brandon Dorsky to represent him and uh, get what he deserves. This is bullshit. Well, I mean, is it it really his ear imprint, though? I don't know. It better be. But um, (laughs) I don't know. How many... How many people have bit ears? I think this is totally, totally on brand for Tyson. I think this is probably one of the smartest things Tyson Ranch has done as a cannabis company so far. And this is a product I would actually buy and actually check out. I should also like to say it's only okay to bite ears when consent is given. Those are nibbles, Rico, Uh, not bites. uh, Jason, have you ever actually purchased cannabis from a store? Um, yeah, I actually, yes. Like maybe once or twice. (laughs) Um, I would also like to, uh, to note that when Tyson 2.0 first came out, they were supposed to be all about mental health and education and all that shit. And the last two stories we've covered, (laughs) the last one was, uh, the strains he's coming out, like like punch you in your face, OG (laughs) or some shit like that. And then now he's putting out gummies in the shape of Evander Holyfield's ears. Come on, man. (laughs) Bro, this is totally on brand for him, bro. If you remember when fucking Nintendo was out, he had Mike Tyson's punch out. I mean, he's a boxer. This is totally on brand for him. And I support it a hundred percent. Listen, I support it too. And I believe that it's on brand, but. If you're putting out a press uh, a press release when he first came out with Tyson 2.0, and you're saying it's going to be all about you know education, all about mental health, and like all this other shit, and you're coming out with this stuff, like come on, man. Tyson <laughs> 2.0 is a totally separate company, totally separate entity. Tyson Ranch is a weed company. Oh, Tyson I know. 2.0 is this whole manifestation, fucking awakening bullshit. <laughs> exactly well, bullshit. I'm not sure it's really uh, totally an, an, a bullshit. I mean, he was a young man and he became very famous and had a very toxic manager and just didn't really have the support he may have needed when he was really young. So I can see why he went off the rails a little bit. And a lot of time has passed. I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about this ear biting incident, but it does address the fact that it did happen and it puts it out as like, listen, I I recognize that it did happen. I recognize that I, you know, did some really ridiculous and foolish things when I was younger. I'm a different man now. So it might be a really interesting calling card. Did you, did you watch the fight, Mary? Do you remember when Tyson bit Holyfield's ear off? Did you actually watch it? I was, I was a baby back then and my parents wouldn't let me go see Rocky or they wouldn't ever let me see boxing. So I, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a boxing Jason, I, 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 I actually remember it. this. I watched uh, me it. Too. You remember when the, uh, the, the dude parachuted into the ring? Like, yes. <laughs> it was, the whole thing was crazy. I watched it and uh, Tyson allegedly lost a lot of money. Uh, because of that incident, and I think that he's just looking to capitalize off of it and, and get that money back <laughs> that he lost years ago by putting out some gummies in the shape of said ear that he bit off. I'd love I mean, to hear I think bigger, he's got bigger plans than that. I'd love to hear from Brandon and Laura. Uh, I, I, I think this is a clever idea, but I do know that multiple jurisdictions have laws restricting the way uh, edibles can appear. And many of them limit the edibles from appearing like animals or humans or body parts. So his legal team really needs to look at the regs of everywhere they're planning on releasing this product. I I think I I think if it's um, uh, if it's not of a particular person's or if it is to me, if it is of a particular person's uh, mold that you can actually do it. Uh, There's something that uh, uh, a 
legal issue that I ran into last year, and we actually got clearance on uh, putting out edibles of uh, one of our clients' uh, body parts. Not, uh, not to mention, Rico, as go, long as the bite the was. <laughs> also, Rico, if the bite was at least 30% of the ear, then you're not going to have a problem. <laughs> uh, trademarking. <laughs> what was the body part, Rico? Uh, the other one that I was working with? Yeah. Uh, my client was a porn star. I'll leave it at that. Dick molds. Bag of dicks. Was, Bag of dicks. Was, We're going to talk about act, sex it, today, it was, actually a, it was actually a vagina mold, a CBD vagina mold for a, uh, a porn star that was one of our clients last year. <laughs> it sold very, very, very well because uh, OnlyFans is an enigma. Right. Well, I think, I think this is going to sell well. I think it has a great market, especially around Christmas time. A good gift if you can get your hands on it. And if you can't, pussy pops. Your mouth around. Pussy pops for everybody. Let me know. I'll send you the link. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. Send it my way. Um, I'm anti gummies too. So there's that. I don't think cannabis should be associated with all that sugar and Pectin. whatever the hell they make gummies out of. Pectin. There's a lot of uh, vegan uh, gummies that are out now. So yeah, the ones that we were uh, that we were producing. Uh, I know Jason's gonna love this. They were um, Delta Eight gummies. Is that, is that what you picked up while you were out there, Rico, in Texas? <laughs> With sugar. Let's have some Delta Eight and sugar. Yum. All in the shape of a pussy pop. <laughs> there need to be sugar-free products, cannabis products. No more gummies. So, is there the a slogan, Rico? Can good. you make that pussy pop? I'll send you. I'll send you over everything. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Including the pictures. <laughs> well, the I'd say it's kind of helpful for yeah. uh, heat tolerance. <laughs> You know, if you're when you're making them, if you make them with gelatin, you could they can only heat to 100 degrees. So if you're transporting in the southern states, that can get a little dicey. But with pectin uh, in the in the mix, you can get it up to 300 degrees before they become heat unstable. So, and they become vegan. So the pectin is a really nice opportunity compared to gelatin. With that, we're going to keep on moving. So up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at South by Southwest or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, yeah. Riding high. Down here in uh, Austin, Texas, for South by Southwest. My, my story is coming out of the uh, CBT Cannabis Business Times um, from Tommy Lang over there. Texas Governor Hopeful Beto O'Rourke rides pro cannabis stance. All right, so Texas Democratic uh, challenger to the governorship, Beto O'Rourke, has continued to push his pro cannabis agenda while on a panel for South by Southwest this past weekend. Even though he's trailing incumbent Greg Abbott by seven points this weekend in Austin on the main stage, he said, if elected, he'll work to legalize cannabis in the Lone Star State. He even suggested this Texas Republican-controlled legislature uh, would back him on the issue uh, while on the panel. I'll let you in on the secret. Republicans like to get high just as much as Democrats, he said, to a standing ovation uh, for the crowd out here. And you know what? He's right. Uh, I smoked with a few legislators, uh, Republican legislators down here, and I spoke with them um, on a few issues uh, this week. Uh, uh, this week, while I was out here, including former State of Cannabis News Hour correspondent Sarah Strogner, who's running for railroad commissioner. She's hoping uh, the economic opportunity presented by the industry will be enough to tip the scales. But interestingly, it's not Greg Abbott who's recently adopted pro-cannabis messaging, or even the challenger, Beto O'Rourke, should he win, um, that Texans fear to be the roadblock to any movement. Sentiment on the ground here is it's Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick that's holding up progress. The staunch Republicans' prohibitionist leanings uh, resonate well with good old Texas reefer madness. And while here in Austin, you can accidentally stumble into a Delta 8 haven on any random city block, uh, hopes of getting the real stuff anytime soon out here legally remains murky. Strogner also told me that uh, they have 
hope that the competition the, or the competitive business nature of Texas may also help them out because uh, it doesn't look good when the neighbors on all four corners of the state are making money off of crop. Um, you just know the public has an appetite for. It'll be interesting, no doubt, uh, to see how the great state of Texas plays out. But for now, I'm going to check out of my Airbnb Airstream down by the river over here and head out and meet fellow correspondent um, uh, in Austin, in Austin native Stone Slade for a little bit of Texas barbecue love before heading home to L.A. Got to find out for sure if Texas barbecue is second place as second place as their tacos are. Los Angeles tacos kill Texas all day. This is Rico Lamit, Dope's Dad on these weird-ass Austin streets, reporting live for, from South by Southwest 2022 for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And I'd love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this one. Especially my Republican correspondents, Gretchen and uh, Jason. Yes, please. Beto O'Rourke doesn't have a chance. I don't know. If you go by the same bro poll science that <laughs> that uh, uh, all these Republicans are saying got uh, uh, um, uh, Donald Trump reelected. Oh, it doesn't seem that way. Have you been to any of the rallies? I swear he won. If you go by that shit and you're walking through these Austin streets, you, you will swear Beto O'Rourke is going to be king of Texas pretty soon. You are in the heart of Liberalville in Texas right there. So it doesn't get any bluer than there in the entire state. And that's probably almost as blue as it really gets. I don't know, man. The, the people who stayed behind here, a lot of the liberals that are, are natives to South by Southwest, they actually uh, get the fuck out of Austin while the festival comes down here. The people who stay behind are the business owners, and most of them are Republicans. And they're saying that they think that, oh, Beto O'Rourke really has a chance because nobody really likes Greg Abbott. But um, everybody's scared of Dan Patrick. They don't give a shit about Greg Abbott. They said that he's a figurehead. Uh, Dan Patrick is the one that really runs everything. And I don't believe in polls. They're so wrong all the time. Just just stripper polls, right? His laws are wiped down, Jason. Wipe them down. Laura, were you going to say something? Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, how do people on the ground there talk about the gerrymandering, right? I mean, because that's really what's going to keep Beto out of office. What's going to keep Beto out of office is the fact that he's a horrible fucking candidate. That's not true. <laughs> he's uh, interesting. Let's put it that way. He doesn't even go by his real name. Do you, Jason? Yes, my name is Jason. Oh. What's the deal with his name? His name is not Beto. Okay. Yeah, I think it's like Patrick or some shit like that. <laughs> it's like some, re- <laughs> like some like regular ass name. The better well, is um, it resonates with the uh, the locals, I guess. I, I don't know what's wrong with that. Most of the people I know in the cannabis industry have fake names. Yeah, most of the people. I didn't in the know Kyle Cushman wasn't aren't, aren't running for an elected office either, Susan. That's true. If you can't tell the truth about your name, what else are you going to lie about? <sighs> Ronnie Reagan and his black hair. Come on, man. 80 years old, jet black hair, shoe polish on his head. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. It's the same thing with Donald Trump with his blonde hair. <laughs> Orange face. <laughs> They're all a bunch of phonies. Let's face it. Correct. Let, let the mood growth happen. All right. Well, I guess we're going to keep on moving. Up next, up next, we've got Jason Beck. Jason is the longest retailer in cannabis U.S. history and the highest supporter of safe banking. What's your headline today, Jason? Oh, thank you so much, Susan. Today, I'm actually coming to you live from where my story is based out of. That's right. The shithole known as Adelanto, where corruption and crackdowns in California is a marijuana market. After California voters to decide to legalize cultivation and the sale of adult-use cannabis in 2016, the vast majority of state cities banned those activities within their borders, but Adelanto's leaders were eager to embrace the newly legal market. The small desert town of 31,000, best known for its nearby prisons 
and neighboring town of what I call Victimville, had a reputation for poverty and impetus. Local part, local politicians hoped legal cannabis would change that. In May of 2017, the Adelado City Council approved a plan to license adult-use growers and retailers, making the town one of the first in the state to do so. That early and a typical choice attracted a lot of national press coverage. In an interview with the New York Times, the mayor, Richard Kerr, predicted that Adelanto could raise $10 million annually by taxing local cannabis businesses. It didn't happen. Adelanto's budget for 2020. 2021 anticipated just $1.4 million in cannabis revenues. That less than a third of the city's projected $4.5 million budget deficit. While that $1.4 million is money the town would not have seen without legalization, it clearly isn't enough to save Adelanto. Kerr is no longer Adelanto's mayor. The FBI raided his home in 2018 as part of a corruption investigation. Three years later, it arrested him on seven counts of, of fraud and two accounts of bribery. Kerr is accused of taking at least $57,000 in bribes and kickbacks to approve permits for cannabis businesses. His arrest comes comes four years after then-City Council member Jermaine Wright was accused of taking a $10,000 bribe from an undercover FBI agent posing as an applicant seeking approval for a local cannabis transportation business. Is It is true that California has badly mishandled legalization, so badly that more than five years after voters approved that change, the black market still accounts for an estimated two-thirds of cannabis sales. But far from the result of weak regulation, this disastrous rollout of legal cannabis stems from giving officials too much power to decide who can produce and sell it. Market overseers such as Global Go Analytics estimate that legal cannabis sales in California total $8 billion a year, double the amount of legal sales. The reason for the black market's presence is that many Californians do not have easy access to legal retailers. California only has two licensed dispensaries for every 100,000 residents, compared to about 18 in Oregon and 14 in Colorado. Meanwhile, the power of Prop 64 gave local governments fought, uh, were, were, Local gave local governments the ability to foster corruption. When Adelanto leaders announced that they would uh, let the cannabis industry in, there was the land. There was the land rush because so few cities were welcoming cannabis businesses. Everybody interested in establishing a, a presence in the industry wanted to set up shop in Adelanto, and property values tripled. Local control is the primary factor that is crippling California markets, says Hirsch. Hirsch Jane, founder of the marijuana consulting firm Ananda Strategy and chair of the Los Angeles Marijuana Chamber of Commerce, local control is often framed as a democratic virtue. In practice, local control is being used to thwart the, the, the will of the voters. In dozens of California cities where most voters favored Prop 64, Jane notes local politicians nevertheless are blocking dispensaries. La last of all, local residents who object to the situation started gathering signatures for ballot initiatives that would force officials to and force officials in places like Manhattan Beach and Redondo Beach to let retailers in. Some cannabis business advocates are pushing for a new statewide ballot initiative that would restrict or remove cities' authority to completely ban cannabis sales. And I'll tell you what, this article had so much corruption in there. I definitely encourage you to read it. It's probably like a 10-minute read. But uh, there is so much corruption just happening here in California and all of these different municipalities throughout the state when local control is involved. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis. This news hour. They should take, uh, they should uh, reallocate the law enforcement off of the drug war and onto the corruption war. That's what the federal government's been doing with the FBI with all these sting operations. But whenever there's war, there's always collateral damage. You got to think about that too. Innocent people will get hurt. Innocent politicians, Rico? Innocent people coming in all shapes, forms, and flavors, Susan. I mean, innocent people could just fall on the street and hurt themselves, too, Rico. Like, I hurt when I fell off my bird scooter last night. Did you scratch your face? That's the moneymaker, bro. Never scratch the moneymaker. Hey, everybody really read this article. Let's let's uh, talk about corruption. It's really important. Especially on Tuesdays. Yes. The article makes a really good point that California, California's decision to allow for local control essentially created government gatekeeping 
And because of the misperception that the legal cannabis business is so profitable, you have a lot of gatekeepers that are looking to pull off the top. And it's become a huge problem, but it's a particularly bad problem here in California with lots of politicians being called into uh, legal suits. Yeah, I'm and just going to second what Brandon was saying, too, because the idea of local control, it's, it's insane. Do we do that with alcohol? Does a certain county say, no, we can't have alcohol sales here? It's absurd. And that carve-out for conservative uh, counties in, in the northeast part of the state, in the Inland Empire, you know, beyond the, well, the empire went for cannabis, but there's many sections. It's just, of course, like Jason was saying, it just creates this super limited market, and we have an extremely mature we have the most mature illicit market in the world. We've been doing this for 60 plus years. So of course we have an embedded, we have a ready-made market that they can, people can turn to. So it's actually really simple issues. The, the problem itself is complicated, but directly we need to, what, like so many leaders have already said, we need to open the market statewide. And this goes away in a, in a major fashion. The carve-out's mostly from the League of Cities that was uh, lobbying the hardest on that, on that portion. That's law enforcement. And I'm wondering... I'm wondering what the penalties are for government corruption versus growing cannabis. I mean, the penalties for the government corruption are always less than the criminal penalties for growing or distributing cannabis. And to me, that makes no sense. Like the, the, the wrongness of the behavior of the politician is way worse than the person who is growing or distributing cannabis independently of a license, most likely because they can't afford the transaction costs. I mean, the, the politicians have had their robes paved and are still doing illegal stuff in public office. They should go to jail for a much longer time, and their fine should be much bigger. Like, we shouldn't be criminalizing and punishing the people who are growing a plant that helps us heal. Brandon, Why would the think, people think, that make... I think that's a great point, Brandon. Um, and I would also like to note that this is one of the few things that does not make sense, but it does make dollars for these politicians. And that's why they continue to do it and continue to take the dollars out of our pockets and they continue to prosecute people that should not be prosecuted. Corruption sucks, but, um, you know, fish rots from the head. Why would the politicians create laws that penalize them more? They won't. They won't, but we could vote on it as the will of the people. I mean, the, the people were misled with Prop 64, thinking they were opening up a market, and really they created a marketplace that has allowed the government to put the kibosh on it until they get their peace. And that has allowed the illicit market to blossom because the citizens just want to get quality cannabis or cannabis period at a reasonable and affordable rate. And it would be much more affordable if all of these local jurisdictions didn't add an extra vig on top, whether it's in the form of a bribe or it's in the form of some local tax to the res to the consumer that is just baked in for the operator. I would also argue that the League of Cities sort of added a burden onto all these local governments for an issue that they're not necessarily prepared to deal with or staffed to deal with uh, because it's so complex and requires so, so much research and just even keeping track of all the state laws and the development of, of progress you know, in Washington, D.C. is not something that some of these smaller towns that don't have legislative staff for their council members who are maybe paid $500 a month in some cases. They're tackling this really big issue that was given to them as kind of a gift of control, but has turned out to be, you know, a big burden upon them. Right. That's where HDL is coming in, right? As the knight in shining armor to try to give the local regulators a lane to stay in, a little information. Um, but that's a conflict of interest in and of itself. Yeah, exactly. And they're getting one type of information that leads them down a path that does not align with what we're seeing, you know, at a macro level. Good old HDL. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's keep moving. Um, I'm enjoying these longer conversations, but we do have a lot of stories to get to. Up next, we've got Gretchen Gailey. She's a Washington, D.C. insider and founder of Panoptic Strategies. What you got today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Susan. My uh, story is coming from the National Post. 
Uh, canopy growth fined nearly 500000 by CRA for allegedly growing cannabis before license. Uh, Canadian cannabis company Canopy Growth was fined nearly half a million dollars in 2020 by the Canada Revenue Agency because it began growing plants on an outdoor farm before receiving its license from the agency. Now the Ontario-based company is appealing the $434,611 fine to the federal court, arguing that it had complied with all its obligations required by both Health Canada and the CRA, contrary to the latter's claims. Uh, But one cannabis law expert says it will be an uphill battle for cannabis growth because there are a number of challenges with their argument against the tax agency. Uh, If I had to pick which side of the argument to argue on, I would be wanting to be on the federal government side of this one, said Trina Frazier, a partner at Brazil Seller Law Firm in Ottawa. In court documents consulted by the National Post, the company says the penalty is tied to its outdoor farm project launched in the summer of 2019. Under, quote, significant pressure to produce enough cannabis after legalization in late 2018, the company set up a corporate subsidiary in early 2019 that applied for a cultivation license from Health Canada for an outdoor farm, according to the appeal. Health Canada eventually gave them their license in June, which was well into the 2019 outdoor growing season. The company then applied for a separate cannabis license from the CRA, which is mandatory under the Excise Act. Court documents say it received the license roughly one month later. But just over one year later, CRA sent Canopy Growth a letter informing them that they were being fined 434 yada yada because it found the company had begun cultivating cannabis before it received its license from the agency. The receipt and cultivation of vegetative cannabis plants prior to obtaining a cannabis license under the Excise Act is a contravention of the Excise Act, reads an excerpt of a letter sent by the CRA uh, and was quoted in court documents. The amount of the fine was based on two-thirds of CRA's estimated market value of the 2019 crop, uh, the company said, meaning the total value was likely around $650,000. In reality, the fair market value of the 2019 crop was nil, as evidenced by the fact that the crop was destroyed and no viable cannabis product was ever produced from the crop. Uh, is what Canopy Growth is arguing. The company also argued that it never contravened the law because it never received its Health Canada cannabis license and believed that nothing in the Excise Act prevented it from beginning cultivation while waiting for the CRA license. They say the CRA letter contained no conditions, limitations, or restrictions with respect to the production of cannabis products. The alleged offense that the CRA has accused us of committing is not an offense under the EA. In the appeal, Canopy Growth also said that the sections of the Excise Act only state that a cannabis license is required for legal cultivation, which they argue is referring to the one emitted by Health Canada under the Cannabis Act and not the one by the CRA under the Excise Act. They're going to have a hard time establishing that when you see the phrase cannabis license in that section of the Excise Act, that it could possibly mean a cannabis license issued by Health Canada. I think it's clear, but it's up to the court to decide. In its appeal, Canopy Growth is asking the federal court to either cancel the fine and order the agency to reimburse the money or diminish the value of the fine if the court considers that the company did commit an illegal act. Both the CRA and Canopy Growth declined to comment on the case because it's in front of the court. A company spokesperson confirmed that it had paid the fine in full in 2019 to avoid further financial penalties associated with the late payment. Um, I think Canopy Growth is paddling upstream without a paddle. Um, I'm no lawyer, but you guys paid the fine. I don't think they're getting their money back. Um, and I think it's going to be a hard case for them to win, um, suggesting that they didn't really understand it. I, my understanding is just cause you don't understand the law doesn't mean you're not in violation of it. This Gretchen state of cannabis news hour. They had to know they were taking a risk. Well, yeah, but even if you don't know, I mean, again, ignorance of the law is no defense. It's just a hard and fast rule. I mean, I guess I don't know up in Canada if that's true. I mean, I guess they're trying to say that since they had a license elsewhere, they thought it would cover it. I don't know. I, I, I'm no Canadian expert, but I think cannabis growth is going to be stuck with this. Yeah. Um, that's just me. They knew they were taking a risk. I don't feel sorry for them. No risk, no reward. Okay, true, but you know you're taking a risk. It's like the people that are selling Delta 8 products. You know, that's not a long-term business strategy. I would have someone like Jason or um, any of our other folks out there who 
are related to the cultivation field here, if they feel this fine is um, in line with what they should be uh, charged with, about two-thirds of the value of the plant. I mean, is that normal? Is that what a good fine should be for a crop? I think that's an erroneous fine. It's, it's extremely high for that. When you compare it with other industries, you don't, you don't come close to seeing these types of fines like that, in my opinion. Well, yeah, but when you're growing the devil's lettuce. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to do a quick relight. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily That's dose. That's expressing State of Cannabis News Hour. Those are the individual speakers, not those of any other speakers, State of Cannabis, or its members. The substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. We're going to keep smoking the news with Lara DeCaro. She is a fighter for Love is Love, co-founder of International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and founder of San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal, Legal Project. What's your headline today, Lara? Hi, thanks, Susan. Um, my headline today is um, it's about body parts again. I'm going to continue on that theme. Sorry, folks. So this is about the new cannabis strain with attention-grabbing name set to soon be available in Missouri. That's the title of the article. This one is by Angela Stalmakowicz, I think, sorry, for the leader post, which I believe is out of Arkansas. But anyway, now depending on whose article you do read, this was also published in Forbes. The name of the strain may be bleeped out or it might be censored, but the general sentiment around the company's intent is supportive, for sure. So this Little Rock, Arkansas-based dispensary with two locations expects to debut a medical cannabis strain in Missouri by the name of Titty Sprinkles. The retailer's overall goal is simple. They say, we aim to create the ideal place for you to learn about and shop for cannabis. They provide discounts for seniors over 65, active and retired military personnel, first and second time visits for new patients and current cultivation and dispensary employees. But the strains moniker is meant as an attention-grabbing way to promote their available options, to raise the profile of women in the cannabis industry, they claim, and to offer relief for certain symptoms experienced by breast cancer patients, including insomnia and pain. Now, according to the author, the company already has 44% female employees, which uh, the author points out is certainly not the norm in the weed industry as a whole, she says, but she doesn't go on to say how many of those women may be in any position of power or decision-making authority. So that is a, a detail left out. And then the author goes on to point to the MJ Biz study um, regarding women losing ground as leaders in the cannabis industry that was published last year. We've all talked about that. Um, and, you know, I find it a kind of interesting. She, she points out that the retailer's chief marketing officer claims that this strain was named after his mom, but it's also derived from snorting drugs off women's naked breasts. So I'm concerned about the, <laughs> the potential reasoning behind this. Uh, but it's, it's a fun little story. It's an interesting story. I think it's great that we're highlighting women's health issues. Um, although I'm not really necessarily sure, you know, when we're trying to get away from strain names, like, you know, I mean, this isn't really on par with Alaskan thunderfuck, but it's kind of the same concept, right? And so I just am curious to hear what my fellow correspondents and everyone in the audience thinks about this. My name is Laura DeCaro reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Words are so weird. Words are just strange. I mean, I, I don't know why Titty is such a like, like I mean <laughs> I think this is a, I think this is an excellent idea. <laughs> I'm just like, thinking, like, like titty, titty sprinkles like Excuse me, waiter. My titties arrived with no sprinkles on them. Can you please take these back? I'm I'm with you, Rico. I totally think this is totally fine. There's no problem with it. There's other strains that reference this. Uh, there's like tits by IC Collective. And then back in the day, I used to have a strain. I used to call it Sweet Pussy. I think I, I, I think you know this. Some certain cannabis companies are missing out because you can definitely. Snort some cannabumps off of 
<laughs> some some, some teddy sprinkles. <laughs> and Delta Eight flavors available here in Austin, Texas. Well, while I agree it could be a good marketing ploy, I think it's idiotic. Um, and I think it frankly does nothing for women in the space or for the woman that they're trying to honor at all. I think they're dipshits. <laughs> Isn't the beauty in the eye of the beholder though? Cause like some people would find it fascinating and would resonate to it where others just won't. Some people like to dip their shit in sprinkles. Gretchen, you ever think about that? It's all about choice in this country. Sprinkles don't stick. So I don't understand how you're dipping your titties in they sprinkles. Do, they um, do if, if whatever you're dipping in it is covered in hot, sticky chocolate. Good Lord. Uh, if anyone who knows me knows that I have zero problem with uh, the with female uh, cleavage uh, and putting it out there and marketing it, um, it's you know was given to me by God and all that good stuff. However... If we're trying to actually honor a woman who was fighting for um, her life and dealing with breast cancer, is it truly the best way to honor this woman and the fight of so many other women in this country by coming up with the dumbest freaking strain name you possibly can? Titty sprinkles? Really? Does that do anything? And don't even get me started on the dumbassness of all these stupid names out there, which have zero, which will do nothing for this industry moving forward. All it does is make us look like morons. Gretchen, would you be happier if they were called titty nipples and titty sprinkles? I would be happier it with would, it, some fucking scientific <laughs> standards to show that we take this seriously. What about prostate cancer? How will we approach that? What do you want to call that? Like tiny junk for, you know, someone's strain? I mean, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. <laughs> oh, let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Up next, he's a fifth generation Californio. And an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background, writer, brand consultant, event promoter, content ninja, and a freedom-fighting farmer's friend. Up next is the international man of truth-telling himself, Eric Hislerado. What you got for us, my man? Thank you, my brother Rico. I don't know how I follow uh, titty sprinkles, but I'm going to try. Um, so my headline is from the Green Marker Report, and it's Oregon's psilocybin legalization experiment begins in earnest. So I think we all recognize that Oregon has really been a leader in the psychedelic space, and now we get to see their state put their program into practice. I'm personally super interested to see how this plays out. So diving into the story, Oregon made history as the first state to legalize psilocybin for anyone over 21 to use in a therapeutic setting with the passing of Ballot Measure 109 in 2020, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Section, a new section within the Oregon Health Authority, will implement Measure 109 and directs the OHA to license and regulate the manufacturing, transportation, delivery, sale, and purchase of psilocybin products and the provision of psilocybin services over a two-year development period that finishes this December. Um, there's plenty of time to hash out rules. Most will be worked out in May with the final rules by the end of the year. And there's more work to be done with licensing testing labs by early 2023. But since legalization, there has been much discussion about what the psilocybin buy and use facility looks like. Exactly who should be the certified psilocybin services facilitator monitoring the client during their session and how and what a follow-up or integration process should be. What seems to be most concerning is the facilitator part of the legalization equation. I'm going to note that there's been some opposition to this new law from the American Psychiatric Association. Um, anybody can be a facilitator if they have a high school diploma or its equivalent without additional degrees or certifications. Uh, though the facilitator will have to go through a training program, a medical license is not required. Um, quoting, we don't know yet how this is going to work, psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen, co-founder and lead trainer at New York-based Fluence, told Psychedelia. Fluence offers continuing education and certificate programs in psychedelic integration and psychedelic-assisted therapy. The entire legislation project and creating this new uh, credential is a bit of an experiment. I know that it's really groundbreaking, it's very new, it's well-intentioned, and it's got uh, the potential to bring enormous benefits to people. We have to all kind of just wait and see how things play out. Joshua White, founder and executive director of the Fireside Project, a psychedelic peer support service, told Psychedelia that he agrees Oregon is an interesting experiment. I do know that the law requires psilocybin facilitators to obtain a license from the state. 
and the courses that they have to take in order to get those licenses are pretty regulated in terms of what courses have to cover and the duration. What I also think is noteworthy and commendable is that Measure 109 is really facilitating psilocybin outside of a clinical medical model. So you could have an agency in Oregon have a guided psilocybin experience for spiritual development for religious reasons. I think it is really important that people be empowered with the choice to have these healing and developmental and transformational experiences without a diagnosis. Uh, So whatever happens in Oregon, other states are lining up right behind them to legalize psilocybin. Um, The article lists how uh, Denver, Colorado became the first city to decriminalize psilocybin in May 2019, followed by Oakland in June 2019 and Santa Cruz in January 2020. And uh, Washington, D.C. decriminalized psilocybin in November 2020. Uh, followed by four other cities, including Seattle, in in October 2021. I can tell you personally, I would love to see Washington totally on shrooms. I think it would do everybody a lot of good. Um, That's what I got for today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for having me up. When it comes to somebody's health, they should have the right, whether it's their mental health or their physical health or whatever, they should have the right to do whatever they think is best for their health. I personally could use some psilocybin right now, you know, and I should be able to do that. I hear you, Susan, and that's, I think, this critical part. And I love that one quote from that guy, Joshua White, where he says, why does somebody need a diagnosis? You know, like maybe it's just something that, for, for a spiritual aspect or some other aspect of their life, it's not necessarily um, some serious diagnosis. But yeah, that's a, a cr- really crucial part of this. You got to put that in the, in the same lane, man. Uh, like my body, my choice. What you put in your body is your choice, and you should be able to, uh, if, if you're going to be pumping your body full of invermectum or any of these uh, experimental mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, treatments for COVID, you should be able to treat every other ailment as well, whether it's... Um, Cannabis, whether it's psilocybin or any other uh, treatments, uh, this is your choice. You should be able to do what the fuck you want to get better and to feel as good as you can while you're on this earth. Freedom of fucking choice. Go ahead, Mary. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in District of Columbia and D.C., they just added a new rule that if you're over the age of 65, you don't need a doctor to get your medical cannabis card anymore because they figure you have a medical diagnosis that approves you for your card right away. And those types of rules will probably increase across the country. I mean, we have to draw some lines on products that are ineffective or potentially dangerous. But I do also believe that when you get to a certain age, you should be able to make your own medical decisions and and have that be supported. And cannabis should be one of them. The regulations really need, especially when it's so super safe and virtually harmless, you know, unless you have a family history of schizophrenia or have personal history of schizophrenia, there's really very few other reasons to not give it a try. I love this article. I think it, it gives me hope for the future of, of psychedelics. Um, you know, I, I don't see why anyone should be denied their right to try. Uh, and I know that's been a legal battle that's been, you know, waged across the United States right now. But, um, you know, we do have to recognize that it's very scary for people to take medicines that they don't understand. And when we haven't figured out what dosing should look like for people, we need to enter this field very carefully. I love the idea of the facilitated sessions where you can have a guide bring you through, an experienced guide bring you through the experience at least for the first few times. My only pushback on that is, like, Americans are taking all kinds of medicines they don't understand already. The only difference is your doctor tells you something's okay, even though they've been sold something by pharmaceutical reps to give to you, you know, so let people do their own research and and find out what's good and bad for them and uh, take it at their own risk. Well, I mean, I would agree with that if there wasn't a whole whole bunch of people spreading misinformation and false news and, you know, people do their quote unquote own research, but I mean, they don't really know how to read a research article or how to actually properly peruse PubMed to collect the amount of research data. I mean, after 25 years in the business, I still don't understand statistics well enough to trust myself to pull statistics together on on studies I'm doing. I still need a statistician. So, I mean, I can't imagine what somebody who spends their life working in a different field then tries to come over and learn things. I mean, I just, it's just, it's a very specialized knowledge base. 
I just really hope that before I leave Austin, I can uh, touch base with uh, Joe Rogan and he can tell me what's good and what's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Get on the show, Rico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep your keep the right goal in mind. Yeah, I can get him to apologize <laughs> for more words that he said. So <laughs> let's go on to the next story. Um, Helen, straight out of what may or may not be the longest beach, the longest of all beaches. Our next correspondent is the CEO of deliciously vegan edible brand Fruit Slabs. He's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney. His beard, his beard game has been known from coast to coast as strong as fuck. Coming to the stage next is Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me today. Uh, my headline comes from North Bay Business Journal. It's a survey. 37% of U.S. cannabis operators say they're not profitable. New study concludes that cannabis is not an easy profit market with, as I just said, 37% of self-reporting respondents identifying as not generating a profit. The survey covered 396 U.S. cannabis operators. It was conducted by the NCIA. California reported the worst landscape with roughly only one in four businesses saying they are profitable, over 50% saying they are not profitable, and 17% saying they feel their business is breaking even, which is slightly less than the national average of 20%. Mike Benzinger of Glen Tucky Farms in Sonoma County is in the break-even cohort. He said... Did we lose Brandon? Uh, I got a oh, call. There he, is. Uh, he said, I think we're in the business where it's the toughest and the profit is the hardest to get. When we become an industry driven on price rather than quality, that's when it became tough. Benziger predicts operators who do not have access to a store of wealth are, or are overextended will likely see their doors shut soon, saying, quote, the one way small growers will be able to survive is if they already have money or can make legal sales on site. And then he acknowledged that those on-site sales would not be legal. Benziger has survived by diversifying his grow stock to include non-cannabis wellness plants like dandelion. Okay, so now cannabis operators are growing things other than cannabis just so they can survive. The survey identified several challenges facing these growers, including illicit growers and market undercutting price, overtaxation, price volatility, lack of access to banking, lack of investment capital, absence of interstate commerce, oversaturation, absence of federal legalization, unfair criminal justice concerns, you know, the, the same rue of things we complain about all the time. A new term has emerged through this frustration in the legal market, and operators call it prohibition through legalization. The survey concluded that illicit and legal sales combined for an over $100 billion marketplace nationally, which means more than 50% of it is illicit. Californians reported that the limited jurisdictions permitting sales, the lack of access to sell plants and products directly, and the lack of retail space are all what is negatively impacting legal operators. Other individuals interviewed opined that the taxes need to be lowered and rules limited to create a path to profitability. And what was interesting in this article is that it noted one in eight lab facility operators are looking at shuttering their doors this year. They say they are victimized by lab shopping where operators are seeking the highest potency test return and that they have to offer a spectrum of different, different tests just to be competitive, which becomes extremely costly on the equipment. Compliant costs are also high for all of these businesses, including their paperwork. Canacraft reported printing over 4 million pages of documents to meet compliance requirements within a year. Overall, the landscape is a lot less rosier than many pundits paint, paint it, and seasoned operators are approaching their craft with guarded optimism as California proposes to reduce tax burden and open up new markets with less onerous tax requirements. Hopefully those things emerge, because if they don't, we could see the legacy cannabis market die and or suffer, and our options will become limited and less quality. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. I, some labs are going under because they won't cheat? This, That's just... This article said 12% of lab operators are contemplating shutting their doors because they can't make a profit in a uh, potency shopping environment. Aren't we, aren't we, don't we need more labs, not less? Yes. 
That is just crazy. I'm I'm meeting with a, a good friend of mine uh, this afternoon, uh, Cody Bass. He owns Tahoe Wellness Center. He's also a city council member. And he told me yesterday that he feels like he's just working for the government right now. I mean, uh, we could pretty much see this coming anybody out here in California. Um, there's been a lot of scandals with some of the biggest labs and them uh, just cooking results for uh, people looking for the high-potency test results. And it's true, a lot of people on the ground are just going for those high-potency results because that's what the public is buying. There's a lack of education out there letting people know that you should be going for the high-potency, you should be going for, you know, the terpene profile and all that. But who knows where that $10 million for education that was given to the state has even ended up. Maybe uh, Omar Figueroa knows, but I don't. Why does Omar Figueroa know? He said he knows where all that money's going. Oh, okay. Brought, where is it? Yeah, when I brought it up last time, he said, we know exactly where all that money's going. It's supposed to be $10 million allotted to uh, California education. Yeah, I haven't seen anything coming from the state, anything coming from municipalities as far as educating the public on what cannabis is, uh, why it can be uh, right or wrong for people. Um, I just know that $10 million was allotted. No idea where it went. Some of it should go to the show. Come on. We're educating every day. All of it, if you ask me. Yeah. Come on. Honestly, that's one of the most important components of this so that people can understand to get the stigma dropped. All right. I think we need to keep smoking the news. I'm just not sure who we're going to. Did uh, Adelia up next? Yeah. Okay. So. She's the CMO of Event High and an advisor of International Cannabis Business Women's Association, board member of San Diego American for Safe Access, co-host of Blunt Brunch event series, and one of my favorite people in the industry for nearly six years now. Up next, we've got Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us today, Adelia? Hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, So today's article is California's small cannabis farmers launch direct-to-consumer sales platform inspired by industry struggles. Uh, The article starts off with Casey O'Neill, owner and operator of Happy Days. Um, It discusses how a ban on direct-to-consumer sales under California's adult use cannabis regulations was one of the first of many blows to small farmers operating in the state's regulated marketplace. And the blows just keep coming. Um, that's why O'Neill, along with 19 other Mendocino County-based cannabis growers, have actually all come together and launched MendocinoCannabis.shop, an online sales and delivery platform that allows the farmers to sell their small batch craft cannabis products directly to Sacramento and, I don't, I'm going to say this wrong, Butt County, Boot County <laughs> residents, um, Butte, okay. <laughs> uh, products purchased on the platform, uh, which Butte. launched actually this month on March 7th, will provide a 90, 90% return on the retail price back to the farmer uh, after applicable taxes are paid. Um, the farms participating are members of the Mendocino Cannabis Alliance, which is a trade association that provides guidance to small legacy cannabis operators. Now, a few of the issues, which many of you have probably heard, but we're going to just kind of do a quick overview um, of which led to this frustration. Um, the new regs removed all ability to do direct consumer sales. Uh, that was the first struggle. Uh, the second issue he stated was competing with larger scale farms that California began licensing under Prop 64, which we know, the significant tax increases, the amount of unlicensed shops, and of course, the wholesale prices and how they're continuing to plummet. The article also states that over 80% of Californians, um, more than 8,500 cannabis licenses, still operate under a, a provisional license rather than a more permanent annual license as of September 2021, according to data from J.D. Supra. Um, and it also says, although the Mendocino Cannabis uh, dot shop platform can't solve all the issues that Californians cannabis farmers currently face. It does aim to revive direct-to-consumer sales. Um, there's also hope that things are changing uh, within the state. Uh, we all heard about Ca- uh, Governor Gavin Newsom and the legislators seem to understand the issues that are threatening the state's small cannabis farmers. So he proposed uh, in his state budget proposal to aid local governments in opening up more legal cannabis retail outlets, re- reform for the state's tax policy 
policy. In addition, State Senator Mike McGuire has introduced legislation that would end California's flat rate cannabis cultivation tax on July 1st. And Assemblymember Jim Wood would also come to the industry's aid with a bill that would authorize temporary cultivator event retail licenses that would allow small farmers to sell their cannabis products at events through the state. So this was what really drew my attention, this uh, component for the events. Uh, Blair Ockler, owner of Radical Herbs, uh, comments that this could be really huge for them. You know, one of the issues they have is when they sell at events, there's going to be, you know, potentially 30 different farmers. People can't buy the product at the booth. They got to go to a retail. So by the time they make their way over to that retail, who knows if they're even buying from that specific farm they initially wanted to. Um, Beyond providing much needed relief to small farmers, Michael Katz hopes the Mendocino Cannabis Shop platform will will help cannabis consumers identify safe, reliable products that will align with their values. You know, and after reading this article, it's just a reminder that if we truly want change, we have to do it ourselves. And just a reminder of how strong our growers continue to be even through everything they go through. This is Adelia, and I'm a reporter, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love, love, love our farmers. Love Casey O'Neill. We're at time. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And please leave us a good review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you, Rico, for co-producing the show and my pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our, our ears and eyes when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye now. Goodbye. <laughs> That's how they say it down here in Texas. <laughs>